Hey, Pastor Zach here from the Grove Church, and I'm just excited that you are either streaming or have downloaded a sermon right here from TGC. Um, we're excited that you're here and just excited for you. I pray that it blesses you. But before we do get started, I just one thing I want to chat with you about. One thing I just want to really just plead with you that this would not replace you joining in with God's covenant people um, through the local church. I pray that this would be only supplemental to your growth in Christ and would in no way replace you joining regularly with God's people, sitting under your pastor and serving your brother and sister in Christ. And so if you're local to TGC, I just want to extend the invitation for you to come and join us. We're here every Sunday, 10 a.m., downtown Spruce Pine, right on Lower Street. We would absolutely love to have you. If you're not local, then I just ask and pray that you would find a local body of believers who love Jesus, preach the Bible, and is a place that you can both serve in and find community with. After all, this is God's plan to push back what's dark in the world. The local church is to be a light, and we pray that you would find that. I hope that this sermon blesses you. May God bless you as you listen to the proclamation of his word. How are we? Great, one of us. Every Sunday, someday you guys will learn to help me out up here and answer the questions. Um, so how are we? That was so much better. Um, just to, for those of you guys who don't know, my name's Zach. I'm a pastor here uh, at the Grove Church, and we uh, typically preach verse by verse through the Bible. Um, and so we are in the book of Esther. So you have your Bibles, you can turn to Esther chapter 9. Um, and while you're turning there, I just want to take a quick uh, poll. Uh, and maybe, maybe I'm alone in this, and that's kind of what I want to figure out. But if, if you're a person in here and you're driving somewhere, you're going someplace and you forgot something, how many of you like just, I'm not turning around, like I will just go on without whatever I forgot. So there's a couple people, okay, that's cool. That's how I am. So we, uh, it's summertime, a couple summers ago, uh, me and my wife were going down to the, what was formerly known as the Yogi Bear Campground, or Jellystone, or whatever it's called in Marion, it's called something else now. But we're going down there, and we're pulling out, we get to the stop sign out of our little Summit Avenue neighborhood, so it's like 100 yards, maybe like 200 yards from our house, um, and my wife's like, oh, I for we're camping, she's like, oh, I forgot your pillow, and I was like, that's fine, I don't need it, um, we're going to be there for like s only like four or five days, I'll just use my sweatshirt, she's like, oh, I didn't pack your sweatshirt, I'm like, that's fine, I don't need a pillow at all, I'm just going to go, <laughs> so I, it would have been so easy for me to turn around, but it's just like, no, we've left the house, I'm not turning around, we're just going forward, we're going to keep going. Um, and, and so uh, kind of as we go through the book of Esther, we've seen that happen a lot in a few men's lives. And so you, you look at men like Haman and men like Xerxes or Hazarus, and, and they just decide to keep going forward no matter what happens. That no matter the sin, no matter what happens, they're called out. They, they, even when, when Xerxes knows what he does is wrong, he's like, I'm just moving forward. Not, we can't change what I've done. We're moving forward. I'll try, maybe I'll try and fix it from here. But there's no looking back and there's no repentance. And so um, when we look at this book today, we're going to look at primarily two men. We're going to look at uh, Haman, uh, who's a, a godless man who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, does not follow the God of the Bible. He's, a, a, he's an Agagite. He's an enemy of God's people, the Jews. And his people have been enemies since, since Genesis, since Exodus. Um, and so he's an enemy of God's people. And we're going to look at that man, Haman. And we're going to look at Mordecai, someone who, um, not a perfect man, 
but he's becoming a godly man. He, he is uh, part of God's covenant people, Israel, and we're going to be looking at him and, and, and the differences between those two people, and, and really what, what it comes down to is that repentance, that part uh, of, of turning around and saying, you know, what I did was wrong. I'm going to turn from what I've been doing and turn towards something better, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go, but um, because we're looking at a couple of men, one of the things I want to do is, is kind of just talk to the men, and, and what we're going to say applies to everyone, um, but I think as men, we, we are in a unique position to influence those around us, and so uh, men, uh, as men lead and step into all that God has called us to as, as the head of different things, whether that's the head of a church or the head of a family, um, the decisions we make have consequences both good and bad. Uh, as we lead, we, uh, the decisions we make, they implicate our wives, our children, our grandchildren. So the decisions we make will have an effect and can and will have an effect for generations. And today we're, gonna, we're really going to kind of really see that in a really dark way. But I want us to understand that the decisions you make just aren't about today or now. But the decisions we make have implications beyond today and now. They have implications beyond those uh, in our family. Uh, if you're a, a businessman and you lead a business, the decisions you make affect a lot of people around you. Uh, if you're a man and you lead your family and you're the head of your family, the decisions you make will implicate all those around you. Um, and it goes, can go on and on. And this applies to everyone. But because God has given the, the, the unique role of headship to men, I wanted, I wanted to talk to the men for a second. And, and when I say it implicates those around you, the thing I want to say is that you're responsible to an extent for, for the decisions you make and how they affect others. And as the pastor here, if you're a man here, um, you're, you're, my, you're my man. You're, you're, you're one of my men, and, and, I'm, and I'm responsible for you. Ultimately, um, you're responsible for yourself, but there's a part of my responsibility where I will stand before God and I will give an answer for how I led you and how I called you. So that's, that's why we talk about men a lot. Uh, isn't because we don't love women. I mean, we love women. And, and my belief is if I can get men to lead sacrificially like Scripture said they should lead, then, then the women will flourish. And there will be no charge against our church for, for talking about men so much because if, if the men lead in the way that they were called to lead, which is how Christ laid his life down for the church, then man, like women would flourish in their giftings and they would be like well-watered vines. And so that's our goal. And so today we're going to talk a lot in Esther about how Jesus can reverse our decisions um, that we're responsible for repentance, and Jesus is responsible for reversing the effects. And so we see uh, a few great reversals. We see a man, Mordecai, who's kind of low on the totem pole. He's part of God's people. Um, and we see a guy named Haman. Haman, uh, like I said, he's a godless man. He's number two in control of the entire empire of Persia. Imp the empire of Persia is the largest empire the world has ever seen up until this point of history. And Haman is number two. He's second in command of this empire. And he's high. But he has this, he, he, he creates this death sentence for God's people. He decides, because because Mordecai will not show him respect, he goes to the king and said, hey, there's these, there's these people, they're called the Jews. We can kill all of them. And if we kill all of them, you can get incredibly rich, Mr. King. We'll take all of their stuff and we'll put it in your treasuries and you'll be rich. And it'll be awesome. And so Haman gets the okay from the king. For king Ahasuerus is his Persian name. Xerxes is his Greek name. And so they set a day that they're going to kill all the Jews. And Mordecai weeps. He laments. He's saddened. He ends up fasting. Because uh, Esther, his adoptive uh, daughter, tells him to fast. Um, and in a great reversal... The same gallows or impaling spike that Haman created for Mordecai, Haman has, has hung on. And the people of God who were sentenced to death 
are now able to defend themselves legally and, and kill those who would seek to kill them. And we talked about this last week and how that was, how I believe that was justified, that um, it, much like in war, if someone ambushes you or shoots at you, you can shoot back. The, the men and women of the Bible, of, of, of Israel, had men, women, and children coming at them with weapons and trying to kill them, to annihilate them, to destroy them. And the law that was passed was you are allowed to defend yourself. You're allowed, on this one day, you are allowed to defend against the enemy. And so they do. And we're going to get into a little bit of that today. Um, But that's kind of where we are. There's this great reversal. And so what happens is, we read last week, is that Mordecai, because Haman was hung, Mordecai takes Haman's spot. And so there's this great reversal that that Haman made this spike to hang Mordecai on, and now Haman hangs on it. And and Mordecai gets the house of Haman. He gets the signet ring uh, that was given to Haman from from King Xerxes. And so there's this great reversal. And and the enemies of God were going to kill the people of God, but now the people of God defended themselves and killed the enemies of God. So there's this incredible reversal because a man and woman of God turned from their ways and turned to God and God had this reversal. And so in, Ro- in uh, Esther 9, we're going to read through it. We're going to see probably one of the, the bloodiest, um, controversial, painful, difficult passages of Scripture. Um, it's why for the first seven centuries of the church, there wasn't a single commentary written on this book. Um, and so we're going to read it. We're going to dive into it. Um, and we're, it's, it's complicated. It's hard. It's painful. Um, but that doesn't mean we get to shy away from it, right? So uh, Esther chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of, this, of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All of the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dolphin, Dolphin, and Aspartha, and Paratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashtha, and Arasiai, and Ardai, and Vaishatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel were reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? And it shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hang, hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to, to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews were, who were also in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies 
and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting and, glad and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of fasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and, fast and feasting, as a holiday and, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So we read this passage of, of scripture and a lot of things happen and we're going to go through it starting in the beginning. Um, but the first thing that happens, you see, um, is that there's this reversal. That the enemies of God were going to kill the people of God, but now the people of God had mastery over the enemies of God. There's this reversal. They're going to destroy their enemies. They were going to be destroyed, but now they're going to destroy their enemies. And so, God can and often does show up when his people turn to him. And this is what happens in the story is his people turn to him. There was three days of fasting, three days of, of, of what we can imagine as seeking the Lord. He doesn't really say that. In fact, God's never mentioned in the book of Esther. But there's three days of fasting and, and really just waiting. And Esther goes before the king and, and asks the king eventually to save her, to save her people. She risks her own life to go before the king to ask such a thing. And, and, and the king, right, you know, allows Mordecai to create this edict that is on this day, the same day that there's another edict that allows ev anyone to kill the Jews, on this one day, you can defend yourself against anyone who's armed against you and kill them. And that's what happens. And so God saves them, saves his people as they turn to him. And, and our part in this is the repentance. We don't have to handle the reversal. God does that. But we turn to him and we turn to our lives. And I think, you know, th there's, this, there's this other law um, in, in Persia called the law of the Medes and the Persians. And what that is is there's a law that says no law can be reversed. No law can be rescinded. No verdict, no decision can ever be rescinded that's made by the king. And so they couldn't just go back and say, you know what, we take back um, what, what we said everyone could do against the Jews. They, could, they didn't go back and do that. Now, they, I guess technically they could, but they'd be breaking another law. It I, I believe it would have been the right thing to do is for the king just to repent and say, you know what, I made a mistake. I was drunk, because he was, and um, I let this horrible guy talk me into a horrible plan, and I, I signed off on it. I shouldn't have done that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescind it. But instead, he, they, have, they just create another edict. And they do it, and God shows up, and God saves his people. Because his people turned to him, but there's another people who just couldn't repent. I think oftentimes we're that people, we don't repent. And men, oftentimes, when we're confronted with our sin or confronted with the wrong decision or something we know we shouldn't be doing, we just keep plowing ahead. We just keep going. We say, you know what, I, I, even in, in inside you can say, you know what, I, may, I know I made a mistake, but I can't admit it, I'm not going to do it, I'm just going to maybe we're good enough, good enough to decide, I'm going to just try better from this point on. But we never actually turn around and say, you know, what I did was wrong. I sinned against the Lord. I sinned against my wife, my kids, my, my coworkers, and I repent, and I'm sorry. And I'm going to turn to the Lord because I sinned against him and, and seek his forgiveness. We don't do that. We just keep, oftentimes, we just keep plowing ahead and say, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. And this is what Haman did. This is what Xerxes did. They just kept going. They kept going. They kept going on their sin. And when we're confronted with our sin, man, we have, we, we live in this, in the Grove, we have this incredible community. And, and, and we talk to one another. And we, we're honest and transparent with one another almost most of the time. 
I'm sure there's things I don't know, so I, don't, I, don't, I, guess, I guess I'll never 100% know if we're transparent and honest, but I do know there's people here who are vulnerable with their lives. And there's, and there's a difference between tra- being transparent and vulnerable, right? Transparency is awesome, and I think transparency leads to vulnerability, but we have to get to a point where we're actually vulnerable with some people in our lives. Transparency is this idea of I'm going to let people see what's, what I want them to see in my life. Vulnerability is saying I'm going to put my shield down and I'm going to hand someone the sword. I'm going to put my shield down and I'm going to give them something that they can harm me with, that they can actually do damage to me with. I'm going to trust that they won't, but even if they do, I'll be okay. Even if they do, I'll be okay. There's this sense of vulnerability. And when we're vulnerable people, people might call us out and say, you know what, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is a sin. You sinned against the Lord. You sinned against your wife. And you need to repent. And at that point, we have a decision to make. We can repent, seek forgiveness, or we can keep plowing ahead. And see, what happens with Haman is he keeps plowing ahead. And then what happens? He taught his ten sons to keep plowing ahead. And so, he, so the father dies because of his sin. And his sons, never seeing repentance, never seeing their dad seek forgiveness, they say, we're going to keep doing what dad did. And they plow ahead, and they die. Some of us need to repent of our sins. Some of us need to look back in our, on our families and say, you know what, I don't want to keep doing what my family's always done. I think oftentimes we can over-romanticize the past or history of our family. And man, maybe your family has done some, maybe your family loved the Lord, they did some great things. But, I, but I want, I, we need to look and say there's probably some sinful things that my parents have passed on to me. Some sinful habits, some sinful traits that they passed on to me. The Bible's going to say this over and over again that these things happen. The Old Testament talks about the sins of the father falling on the sins of the sons. First Peter says, talks about the sins of the family and repentance. I mean, there's this sense in the Old Testament that Isaiah says he, he's a man of unclean lips and he comes from a people of unclean lips. He understands there's corporate sin where we keep following along the same lines. And my family is no different. So I'm from California. Um, I was born and raised there. But my family's not from there. We're from Oklahoma. And what happened was one of my great-grandfathers decided, um, in, 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 with, with a dark, disgusting, and racist heart, to shoot a black man on the courthouse steps. And to run away from the police, he, they fled to California. So the reason why I'm from California is because of dark, dis- despicable, and racist past. And, and there's anger in my family. I come from a, a family of angry men, angry people. And I could, I see that well up in me because what I grew up seeing was anger. And I see that in me. And I, I, could, I could just plow forward and say, this is, what, this, is, this is what a mason does. Or I can be the chain and the link that breaks everything and I can repent. And I can repent for my family. Now they're so responsible. It doesn't change anything. But I can repent and say, God, like, we've sinned against you. Generations have sinned against you, and I want to change that. I want to follow you and not follow the path of my family. And we can do that. We, can be, we don't have to be like Haman. We don't have to die with our family. We can change things. And so 13 years ago, man, God saved me. And 13 years later, God saves my father. And I get to baptize him, like, right here. It's just amazing. Like, you can change everything. My, my I have a brother who loves Jesus. I mean, like, like, God's changing my family. We can be the, the, the difference in our family. We can change the trajectory and the legacy of our family. Now, is everyone going to get saved? Is everyone going to be all happy and rejoice? No. But what could God do if you took your sins seriously in your family and you repented and you showed them something different? You can be the difference of your family. You don't have to die like the ten sons of Haman. 
so many of us are governed by the law of the Medes and the Persians. I don't repent when I'm wrong. I don't say I'm sorry. I've chosen this course, and I will continue, even if it's disobedient, even if it leads to death. But we can turn. And I think oftentimes, we as Christians, we get stuck in talking about repentance, turning from our sins, but repentance is just as much turning from our sins as it is turning towards Jesus. And we can say we turn from our sins because our sins are destructive and our sins rob us of joy. But we also turn to Jesus, which gives us joy. We turn to Jesus so we can glorify him and enjoy him forever. And that's the whole point of our life. And so we need to repent. We can't be like the Medes and the Persians. We need to repent. We can change everything. We can change our family. We can change our community if we just be willing and humble enough to say we were wrong and to turn to Christ. So there can be a reversal in your family. There can be a reversal in the trajectory of your legacy. But then we get to some hard parts of Esther. We don't have to have all of our questions answered about the Bible, because we get to this hard part, right? So God has saved his people. His people are glad, they're rejoicing, and the king says, what do you want now? And Esther asks for two things. The first thing Esther asks is let the s- ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. That's not the first thing. He said she's asked to, to be able to kill more people the next day and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. It's, it's, it's important to note the ten sons of Haman are already dead. They already died. They died, the day, you know, they already died that day. And, but she wants them hung on gallows so everyone can see if you believe this, this is what happens to you. you. You do this, you follow this way, destruction, death comes, hung on the gallows. It's a kind of a dark and scary moment in the life of Esther. Um, it's not really what we talk about when we think of Esther, right? So, like, I just, I didn't grow up in Sunday school, but I can't imagine the flannel graph of Esther, like, beautiful dress, tiara, the whole thing, and then, like, ten men impaled on stakes behind her in the, in the backyard, like, that's just a scary picture. I'm not sure we have that in Sunday school. Maybe we do. Maybe, like, I don't know what churches you guys went to, but, like, maybe that exists, but I just can't imagine that. I don't, I don't think that story is in the VeggieTale rendition of this story. <laughs> but it's there. It's in Scripture, right? And not only that, she says, hey, like, I want to go. I wanna, we want to continue killing people. The thing we have to understand about this is the next day, it wasn't legal for anyone to kill the Jews anymore. So when they go out in defense of themselves, they're not defending themselves against people who are armed against them. They're defending themselves against just people who are enemies of them. These, these enemies aren't currently armed against them. They're not seeking to destroy the Jews anymore. That day has passed. And this is a tough passage of Scripture. And it's why a lot of people don't preach through Esther. And it's probably why the commentaries told me not to. But we did it anyway. And we're here. And so what I want to do is I just want to tell you guys, there, there's really, it's not surprising, but the, the commentators are really divided on this issue. And there's really two ways you can go. There's probably a third way. I don't like saying there's only two things. But there's two main ways you could go. And the first way is to say what she did was, was okay. It was right. It was justice. You know, the day before, it was justice. They, people were seeking to harm the Jews. They were literally armed against them. They were, like, coming at them with, I don't know, pitchforks and torches. And they were like, we can defend ourselves. That's just. But this day, what she was doing was she was fulfilling an old command. This is, a, this is a belief, and it's, it's, maybe it's right. We'll talk about it in a second. She was fulfilling an old command. See, in Exodus, 
the, the, these people, the Amalekites, who, who, where uh, Haman and the, and the enemies of God come from, they sought to seek out the destruction of the Jews. In fact, when Israel became a nation again, out of Egypt, um, they were the first ones to attack the nation of Israel. And so what happens is you get to, um, to, get to the story of Saul, and Saul was told to go out and destroy all the Amalekites, to kill them all. Kill them all, don't, and don't touch their, their treasure, don't touch their goods, don't, don't touch their money. And what Saul did was he didn't kill them all, and he touched all their money. And so that was the exact opposite of what he was told to do. And so you could say the, the conflict between Haman and the conflict between uh, Mordecai is a, is a thousand-year-old war. Where it, and it just hasn't ended yet. The descendants of the Amalekites are now are still fighting against the descendants of Moses and the Jews, right? And so there's this thousand-year-old war that's happening. And so you could, there, there's a case to be made that what Esther was doing was fulfilling this old command. Because what happens? They, they didn't touch the plunder, right? They said it twice in here that they didn't touch the plunder. They actually, like, really just kind of fulfilled the command that Saul was given. And that's one way to think about it. There's another way to think about it that this wasn't okay. That she took a really good law, a good edict that Mordecai made to go out and defend yourself, a just law, and she added to it unholy and unjust things. That it wasn't okay to kill people that aren't armed against you. That you can't go kill people who um, are just your enemy because they're your enemy. There's a case to be made that what she did was wrong, and it was sinful, and, and she's imperfect, like all of us, and, and, and it could be that. And, and so I am hesitant, and I will not, uh, make a strong claim on what I believe, because the Bible's not super clear. But I really think it's okay that the Bible's not super clear. I'm not upset about it. It doesn't shake my faith that the Bible's not clear whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, later Jesus is going to say, love your enemies. doesn't really seem to mesh here. But also, God said to go kill the Amalekites already. So, like, wh- which one is it? Which do we do? And I, I'm, not, I'm okay that it's not super clear. And there's a few reasons why. But, but one thing before we get to the reasons why, I want to I ask you, like, I think stories like this should actually just give us hope. Like, does anyone here have decisions in your life you look back and you're not sure if it was good or, or bad? Like, you're not sure. Sh- I don't know if I made the right decision. I'm not sure if, I may, if, if it was wrong for me to do that. I just don't know. Well, there's really good news in the book of Esther that God uses imperfect people to fulfill his perfect plans. That God draws straight lines with crooked sticks all the time. And I, I think we, we, we have this tendency to create heroes in the Bible where there shouldn't be heroes. The Bible has one hero. His name is Jesus, and everyone else is a villain. Everyone else is eventually, at some point, an enemy of God. And that should give us hope because at one point we were an enemy of God. And as we have faith and we repent and follow Christ, we're now brothers of, with Christ and we're part of the family of God. And so we have this tendency to raise people up, to put them on the flannel graph as these heroes, when really all Esther's trying to do, the book of Esther, is to point us to Christ. And how Christ can give us a better reversal than what Esther has given us here. So those are two perspectives. I don't know. But he, here's, here's some things I want to say that it's okay that we don't know what, 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 which is which. One thing we believe here at the Grove, because it's in the Bible, Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, is that all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is equally inspired, right? But not all Scripture is equally clear. 
Can we, can we say that's right? Like, you read parts of the Bible, you're like, I don't know what this is saying. But it's, in, it's all equally inspired, but it's not all equally clear. Just like God breathed life into Adam, God has breathed life into uh, his word. And God speaks perfectly through the authors of Scripture, but not equally clear. All Scripture is inspired, but not all Scripture is clear. Some parts are, quote, hard to understand. You know who said that? Who said the Bible, some parts of the Bible are hard to understand? Peter. This dude wrote some of the Bible. And he's like, that guy, Paul, I don't, I don't know what the crap he's talking about. That's in the Hebrew. The crap part is in there. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> or the Greek, rather. It's the New Testament. My bad. Yeah, Peter. I mean, this dude's been discipled by Jesus, spent three years with Jesus, was at the crucifixion, saw Jesus resurrected, and he writes, some of this is hard to understand. Like, that should give you hope. That should give you hope. Have you guys ever read Paul? Women should wear head coverings. Men shouldn't have long hair. You're predestined before the foundation of the, of the world. You're like, damn, this is hard to understand how this applies to me today. And that's okay. Perhaps that doesn't mean it's not true. Maybe it just means it's hard to understand. So all scripture is equally inspired, but not all equally clear. However, the Bible is clear. Most of the Bible is clear, especially on matters of what we'll call first importance. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says, what I received, I've passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. This is of first importance. So when it comes to things like Jesus and the gospel, the Bible is clear. The gospel in scripture is clear. That God is good, he created everything good, and we've fallen short of his design. We've rebelled against him, but God has made a way through Jesus. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died our, the death that we should have died, took our place on the cross, was, was risen again, or buried and risen again, and that's of first importance, and it's, it's clear on those things. The third thing I would say is the Bible tells us all that we need to know, but not all that we want to know, right? That's, 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 we can say that. The Bible tells us all that we need to know, but all that we want, not all that we want to know. The Bible says it gives us everything we need for life and godliness, but doesn't tell us everything we want to know. So we'll say things like, man, if I could just, I just knew if I could get like 15 minutes with like Moses, I would just love to know why he hates bacon so much. I just want to like figure that out. But we don't need to know that. We want to know why he hates bacon. I would love to know that. I think it's delicious, but we don't need to know that. Another thing, another, a fourth thing, God has secrets that we simply don't know. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord. Do you guys know what a secret is? No, you don't, because it's a secret. You don't know. You secret something you just don't know. And so God has secrets, things that we just don't know. And it's okay. We don't have to know everything. Because what we get to do is know the one who knows everything. Amen? Like this is a good thing. It's okay that we don't know everything. Because we know the one who created everything. And that's better. Number five, God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways. 
God's thoughts are higher than ours. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says we know in part. We see in part, we know in part, but now we see. But it's like looking through a dim glass. And there will be a day when we do know, when, when, when Jesus will come back and we'll see him face to face. And we'll be known, we'll know him, and we'll be fully known. And the last thing I'd say is the Bible is the most honest book ever written. It'd be so much easier if this little chapter wasn't in here, right? Like, like I don't know if you guys realize how, like, this, is, this isn't just scripture, just this is a story. Like, 75,000 people died because a woman, a queen, just decided to kill these people. Was it a good thing or bad thing? I don't know. But it happened. Like, that's a lot of people, right? That's like a lot of moms crying. That's a lot of brothers and sisters mourning. That's a lot of holes being dug. Like, this is real. This isn't just like a, a made-up story to get across the point. These were 75,000 real people. So this is a really honest book. It'd be so much easier when someone's coming up to Esther, like, hey, tell us about that time where you had 75,000 people murdered. She'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm the queen that never happened. But no, there's this honesty in this book that really, to me, just begs that it's true. Like, I say this all the time, but if Peter was really like the head of the church and could do whatever he wanted with the Bible like the Discovery Channel tries to tell us, like, aren't there some parts that Peter's taken out? Like, Peter, like, horrible, Peter does some really dumb stuff. Like, denies Jesus three times, even though he promises he won't. Paul, like, almost excommunicates Peter from the church at one point because he's hanging out with all the rich people and not doing anything with the poor people. Like, like Peter does some dumb things. Maybe that's why he said Paul's hard to understand. I don't know. But, but Peter does some dumb things, and it's in there. It's really in there. And that gives us hope because we do dumb things. So maybe Esther got it right. Maybe she got it wrong. I think either way, it's okay. And I, and I wonder again, maybe the point is we don't know. Maybe the point is we don't know because there's often times in our lives where we don't know if we did the right thing or we did the wrong thing. But here's the good news. Everyone knows Romans 8.28, Right? And that's like the most popular book. Margie was literally listening to a sermon this morning because apparently I'm not good enough for her by someone else. And uh, that's not true. There are a lot better preachers than me. So if you're not listening to other stuff, you're wrong. But Romans 8, 28, everyone knows this, but we often forget, forget what 29 says. And so we're going to read 28 and 29 because this is good news. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that verse, right? Like a lot of you have any experience in church, anything bad ever happened to you, someone comes up on you, you know what, brother, sister, all things were together for good, so don't worry. But what is that good? Sometimes it doesn't feel good, right? Like sometimes things that happen to us don't feel good. Well, verse 29 is incredible because it tells us exactly what that good is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Like the good, all things work together for your good, that you would become more and more like Christ. Not that you would like run around happy and with a lot of money and the truck you wanted and the, and the house you wanted. That's not your good. In fact, sometimes those things can rob us of our good. But your good is that you'd be more and more like Christ. And so you look back on your life, hey, I don't know if I made the right decision. I don't know if I did this right. I don't, maybe maybe I, I screwed up here. You can rest. You don't have to stay up anxious and worried. God's going to use that. If you're 
If you're a Christian, if you follow Christ, if you love him, he's going to use that to make you more and more like Christ. And you can rest. The last thing I want to say here is we don't have to live a greedy life. I'm just so blown away by the, Jew, the, the people of God here. In Esther 9, 16 through 19, it says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend themselves and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. It also, that's the second time it said that in the previous verse, that they laid no hands on the plunder. See, in chapter 3, when the plan was devised to kill all of God's people, you were allowed to take all the, all the plunder. But when Mordecai makes the edict, when the Jews go out and defend themselves, they lay no hands on the plunder. So your good is not about you getting rich, having your best life now, having the car you want, the house you want. It's not what it's about. It wasn't what it was about for the Jews. It was about having life. And your best, your best good, your greatest good is about having life, about having eternal life. And oftentimes, we're not really sure what eternal life is. What, like, you think about eternal life and you think, some of us think things like, man, I'm going to be in heaven forever singing songs on clouds with harps and stuff. And that's not really what it's talking about. But we read, um, you know, G- Jesus is in the, in the garden and, he, and he's praying this uh, prayer. Um, and... And, uh, or I'm sorry, Jesus is praying this prayer in, in, in John 17. He's praying this, this high priestly prayer. And, and he says in John 17, I want to I read this to you. Because when Jesus spoke in these words, 17.1, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is, to know God and to know Jesus. And so your greatest good, the, the thing that God's working together for all these things, isn't about your greed or about the things you want or the stuff, the, the family you want. And it doesn't have to be material things. Oftentimes, the things we want are not material things. Oftentimes, the things we desire the most are great things, like a family, college, a certain job so I can provide for the family. Those are great things to want. Those are great things to desire. But those things aren't your greatest good. It's not what Jesus is here to give you. He's here to give you eternal life, and that is that you would know him, that you would know God, and you would know the one he sent, which is Jesus. And you get to have that now. You don't have to wait till you die for eternal life. Like, eternal life starts now. And the call is to repent. The call is to follow Christ. And so we, we live this life, and we make these mistakes, and we, and we rebel against God. And, man, we rebel against a glorious, mighty king of the entire universe. And he has every right to be angry. And he is. He has every right to be wrathful and to seek justice. And he does. But where his justice and his mercy meet is in the person and work and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so he sent his son. His son left the throne, came down to earth and lived this life. A perfect life. Not sinning once so that we could see that and see him not only as an example, but we could know him he lives this life, a life of humility, and he's killed, he's murdered on a cross, and he allows this to happen so he could take our place, and so that though God is angry, and though God is angered 
and wrathful towards those who have rebelled against him, he pours that out on Christ for all those who would believe. And so we can turn to him and we can have new life because Jesus didn't just die, he was buried. He wasn't just buried, he rose again. So we can have eternal life today, now. And all it is is turning from your sins and turning to him and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the call for everyone. And God desires that everyone would make that call. And so what we're going to do is we're going to um, we're going to have a time of congregational song, and, and as we do that, what we do here at the Grove is we have communion. Uh, we, we come to the Lord's, the Lord's table, and we, we take part of the Lord's Supper. And so if you're a Christian here today, um, and you want to, to remember all that Christ has done for you through the cross, uh, that Christ has given a better reversal, that he's taken the decisions you made, the things that you've done, he's reversed it for you. Maybe, maybe that was reversed for some, some great things in your life, but Ulti- the ultimate reversal is that you would have life and not death. You want to remember that. You want to remember the work on the cross and come up, take some bread, take uh, some wine or juice, and just remember that and sing to the Lord. Uh, if you're not a Christian here today, the Lord's Supper just doesn't make any sense to you, so that we would ask that you wouldn't come up and partake. It's not to single you out, but it's just because it doesn't make sense for you. It's not a celebration for you, so we'd ask that you would, you would not. You can stand, you can sing, but we just ask that you would not come to the table. But for those who uh, follow Jesus, who love Jesus, come, partake if you want. Um, it's up here and sing. And, and my prayer would be is that you would know him and you'd know the one who sent him. And so I'll pray for us and then, and then we'll sing and, and have uh, the Lord's Supper. Father, I just... Just come before you, Lord, just so thankful for this story, Lord. Thankful for, for the parts of the Bible that I don't understand, God. That we can rest in you, the one who understands all things. The one who created all things. Lord, so we pray, Lord, that even right now, Lord, that we would just continue to repent, Lord. We wouldn't just plow forward and, and, and um, destine our, our kids and our families to a life without you. But we would come to you, Lord, and we would seek your face. We would turn from our, our ways, Lord, and turn. we'd have the humility to admit we're wrong, even when it's the hardest thing we've ever done. Because you're better. The life on the other side, the life in the re- that reversal is so much better. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just work in our hearts, Lord, as we sing, Lord, that, that, that our song would be a blessing to you, oh, Father, that you would just hear it and it would just be a sweet fragrance for you, Father. I pray, Lord, as we come up and we remember the work, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would just um, use that as a remembrance of the gospel, Lord, that all you've done in our lives, the reversal you've already done in some of our lives, Lord. We love you. We're thankful for all that you've done, and just work even now in our hearts as we turn to you and remember um, the great work you've done for us. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.